coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. We, we wanted to have you on for a couple reasons. One is yesterday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we'll talk about that, your service. Sure. That was very moving. Uh, and also, um, you know, your unexpected trip to Poland. To stand at the border and to bear witness to what was happening, right? Bearing witness is also critical. And I felt like I was not doing it alone. And, and to your point is, too, I've learned, and I've learned because of the Jewish Federation uh, allowing me the opportunity to go on many trips and understand, because until you really understand, you don't understand. We, we can't stop talking about these things, because as much as we want to try to pray away the issues, the fact is, is that things are going to come through, you know, change is going to come through education and it's going to come through us as you talk about all the time, because I'm, I may be one of the number one listeners to this podcast, but, you know, you talk about finding common ground. And part of that is through us telling our stories and really listening to one another. I want people to know what really happened. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God, just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person? A token and there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just say thank you as we look and pray for the people of Ukraine, and we thank you for everyone who is helping, just helping God, because it just doesn't make sense to me on how this can happen and continue to happen, but it put it in perspectives on how humans, how we have hurt each other before and how we continue to hurt each other. So God, the Holy Scriptures say that you have the heart of the king and the rulers in your hands. God, we ask you to squeeze the hearts of those who do evil to others. God, we thank you and we praise you. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we just uh, lift up uh, not only Ukrainian folks, but uh, we lift up all the countries that are around Ukraine that have opened their doors to refugees and uh, and are taking care of them. Uh, I can't imagine dropping everything, living in this house and dropping everything and walking to another country to, to save my family. Uh, I just can't imagine how difficult that is that you show up with the clothes on your back and a couple small bags. And those, those, those women that have small children, we lift them up because that adds another element for them, uh, concern for their children. And Lord, uh, we just ask for blessings on the refugees on the people taking care of them. And Lord, I'm going to pray for Putin. Uh, may you soften his heart. May you give him the ability to see his way out of this um, and, and stop the killing. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray these names. Please ask you that you bless uh, our podcast today and bless the rabbi that's going to tell his story of his visit to Poland. Amen. Amen. We're grateful, oh God, that um, generations ago, um, the prophet Isaiah saw fit to say these words, Lo yisa goy el goy cherev, lo yilmadu od milchama, that nation should not lift up sword against nation, neither should any of us learn war anymore. And uh, we pray, God, as it says, at least in one of the prayer books that I'm familiar with, uh, that we shouldn't stop there, um, uh, especially when it comes to beating our swords into plowshares. Uh, maybe we should then take them and 
beat them into musical instruments because then we would have to turn them into plowshares before anyone could ever think of making the implements of war again. And we turn to you, O God, at this time, and we say, Baruch Adonai Osea Shalom. Uh, God, uh, you are the maker of peace, and you should inspire us to be among those who, um, who resist war, but also who bring peace to the world. Uh, and watch out over the people in Ukraine who are directly impacted. Continue to strengthen the hands to those around the world who are giving um, hope as well as supplies to those who need it most. And of course, we also pray for the world around us, for those here at home, uh, that we too should know peace and be among those who bring it to our brothers and sisters in our community. And for all that, let's say amen. Amen. Bill, you know, I'm, uh, you know, you got one of my favorite guests on, Rabbi Andy, and just want to share a couple of things real quick. You know, when he was praying, I thought about um, all the good people who helped my ancestors escape slavery, knowing that they were putting their lives on the line if they got caught. And I always thought, since I've been to Israel four or five times and have you know, like people say, hey, I got good black friends, but hey, I have good Jewish friends, good white friends, a little bit of every friends, black too. I think about when I go and I look at the museum and Rabbi Andy would tell me the name of the museum because I always get it mixed up. And it's like all the stories you hear and it's like, how could that have happened? How could Hitler have done that? And how can people sit back and let it happen? And now I'm living it. I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm, I'm not a participant, I'm a spectator looking at it, but I know of some people who are helping people just like it was a lot of people who helped the Jewish people. It's good people who are helping people. But I think about this one, and Rabbi Andy, I need your help here. They, many of the Ukrainians are escaping, not escaping, excuse me, they're, they're leaving the country, going to safe places. Tell me, Rabbi, about the boat that came to America, full of Jewish uh, people escaping or leaving the harm and our America, the country that I love, turned them away. Do yeah, I have so, that right? Is oh, you, it right? You, you, do, you do have that right. Uh, the, the ship was known as the St. Louis. Uh, it set sail, if memory serves me correctly, out of Hamburg, Germany. Uh, you can see the story documented in many places, most notably just on that, uh, uh, that first uh, area of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. The name of the museum that you're thinking of in Israel is Yad Vashem, which is the international yes. Holocaust Memorial Museum, but of course, the story of the St. Louis uh, is told uh, in in many places, including the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And, and I will say this: you know, the sadness of that story is that they were that boat uh, went to Havana, Cuba, where they were not allowed entry there. Uh, among other places, they were seeking entry into the United States, and the boat was parked off of the shores of Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, you know, again, this is uh, well before I was uh, alive and before my family moved there. Uh, they wouldn't move there until the 1950s. Uh, but uh, there are places that you can still go in Miami Beach today and you can look out and you can see the boats in the water. And from what I'm told, the people could see the shores of Miami Beach. And from Miami Beach, you could see where the boat was parked. Um, they were not allowed entry into the United States. Uh, of course, there were strict um, uh, you know, uh, quotas uh, on who could come in at that time time, our country was in a very different place, uh, at least that we saw afterwards. And uh, they were turned back uh, to, you know, to Germany and uh, many of the people who were on that ship. And again, it was, it was a uh, limited number of people and you can check the numbers on it. Uh, but uh, many of them uh, were then sent to the camps and uh, many of them did not survive uh, the, the onslaught of the Holocaust. Uh, you know, that was one of uh, the terrible periods because not only uh, could people not, uh, Jewish people not seek refuge here in the West, in the United States, uh, but also the British uh, had control over the land of Israel. Uh, they had a mandate over Palestine at the time. And uh, for various and sundry reasons that we'll not go into now, they also restricted Jewish immigration. And so, uh, you know, when we needed uh, refuge most, it was denied to us. Now, I have to tell you, uh, you know, having been to the border between um, Ukraine and Poland, I was in Poland uh, right before Passover uh, in the mid part of uh, April 2022, uh, went over there and, um, 
you could see a very different Europe, right? You saw a Europe wow. that was providing refuge to people that needed it most. Um, from what I was told at the time, there were somewhere on the along the levels of 3 million um, uh, Ukrainians who had sought refuge outside the country, another 7 million within the country. That's a total of 10 million. Um, uh, the, the population of Ukraine as a whole is a little over 40 million. So one quarter of the population somehow or another was not in their, uh, their home area or their homes, as we know many of those places have been leveled at this point. Uh, but, um, but of the 3 million who had left the country, and this is you know, a couple of weeks ago, so things I think have dramatically changed, um, 2 million of them had passed through Poland. And I will tell you, being in the country there, being an eyewitness on the ground there, you see a country that is receiving people with open arms. And some of their cities have grown by 25%. Uh, Krakow, I'll take as an example. It's the uh, second largest uh, city in um, in all of Poland. It had been a town of 700,000. So relative to Greensboro, it's about three and a half times our size. And they had gone from a city of 700,000. They're now a city of close to 900,000. Wow. And, uh, you know, you, you look around and you say, well, are people worried about this? Do you see people wringing their hands? And quite the opposite. Um, you know, Bill, I know outside your house, there's a Ukrainian flag right now. Yes. And you just see, you know, blue and gold. Uh, I guess those are, um, you know, that's my eyes. I keep seeing blue and gold, <laughs> right? Um, but, uh, you know, you see those colors all over um, uh, Poland at this point, uh, with with giant posters of uh, of, um, of Vladimir Zelensky uh, on the walls, and just people with their arms open accepting Ukrainians, mm. and that's what I saw in Poland as of mid-April. Now I could I could talk a little bit more about that. Well, before uh, we do, yeah. I think we should do something. Let's introduce you. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, because we know you, Odell, and I know you, and I've been and, on the podcast. Yeah, before. and you've been on the podcast. This is your second time, but uh, go ahead and. Tell our audience who you are and what you do for a living. Well, my name is Andy Coran, and I'm a small town country rabbi uh, here in Greensboro, <laughs> North Carolina. Odell gets the claim on uh, being a good looking black man. Uh, I would uh, claim uh, completely the opposite for myself. <laughs> I have a lot of compassion on my wife. and I'm, uh, I'm a white guy, but uh, but I, I am the senior rabbi, uh, the 14th senior rabbi in the history of Temple Emanuel Greensboro uh, here in uh, Greensboro. Well, I sit in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, this is my 19th year uh, wow. in, um, in, in Greensboro. And for uh, the first 18 years of my time, I served as um, assistant and associate rabbi, as well as director of religious education. Uh, and now uh, just this past summer became the senior rabbi, the new senior good. rabbi of our we're, congregation. We're glad you are our senior rabbi in town. Thank you. The, uh, yeah. And in, in the temple, is been around for like a hundred years. Uh, this is uh, this coming uh, Rosh Hashanah, this uh, Jewish New Year, will be our 115th year. Wow! So in the history of Greensboro, that's pretty, um, you know, that, that's pretty solidly landed. Um, although not as uh, you know as as long term as some others, and the history of the Jewish people, right? That's somewhat of a drop in the bucket. Yeah, yeah, you know, we've yeah. been here a short period. Yeah, you've been around for a while. Uh, yeah, four thousand years, one hundred fifteen years. Is, you know, we're still working. At it. Yeah, you're just a rookie. You're just coming out of the womb. <laughs> the uh, well, you know, the Jewish community in this town is goes way back mm -hmm. to the point that uh, Moses Cohn and Cecil Caesar Caesar Cohn, who were two brothers, Jewish brothers, came down and started. Cone Mills, which became the, one of the largest textile com country companies in the world. That's correct. They made uh, blue jean fabric, and and there's still a lot of Cone family members in town. Uh, we got Cone Boulevard. We got Cone mm -hmm. Hospital. Uh, yeah. So it was. And they were they were found one of the founding families of Temple Emmanuel. Were they really? Yeah. Oh, they I were didn't among know that. the dozen families that founded our congregation. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> with still many descendants uh, who are members of our congregation. And when most people think of Den Denim, they think of uh, the company that you know, branded. Well, actually, they, they may think of Levi's. Levi's. And uh, from what I'm told, you know, uh, you know, I don't know that folks know Cone Denim or they know, uh, I think they've heard of Wrangler and Lee and, and others. Uh, those come out of uh, the Greensboro area. And that, of course, is uh, a family that, you know, we still know many of uh, the members of that family. That's terrific. Yeah. That's terrific. Well, that was good. Good segue into um, uh, we we wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. One is yesterday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we'll talk about that. Your service, sure, that was very moving. Uh, and also, um, you know, your unexpected trip to Poland. 
Now, is that your first time? No, you've been to Poland, right? I was to Poland only one other time. um, And that was in 2006 when I participated on the International March of the Living, Mm -hmm. uh, which takes place right around this time of the year. It coincides with uh, uh, the the Jewish marking of uh, what we call in Hebrew, Yom HaShoah V'Hagvurah, which means uh, the day not only that we remember those who were uh, impacted by the Holocaust, uh, you know, whether their lives were traumatized or they were murdered by the Nazis and their collaborators, but also we lift up those who resisted and fought back and, mm. uh, you know, like the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, the uprising uh, at Treblinka and in other places. Uh, so, yes, uh, that began last night. It was not our service. This is a community service that we just happened to host last night. But uh, we trade back and forth year after year with the Beth David Synagogue uh, here in town and our, our, our uh, partners there, uh, as well as my very dear friend, uh, Rabbi Joshua ben Gideon. And uh, next year, it'll be at the Beth David Synagogue. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we also partner up with the Jewish Federation here in Greensboro and uh, really provide that as a larger service so that each community uh, does not see itself as having to, to do those particular services on their own. We see it as a time of unity. Can you talk about the Walk of the Living? Because some of our sure. listeners might not have heard that. Yeah, the International March of the Living uh, takes place uh, every uh, every year. Of course, it's had its you know uh, had to be put on pause uh, during the times of COVID, just because of travel restrictions and other uh, concerns. Uh, but uh, ever since uh, the fall of the Iron Curtain and the opening of Poland. Uh, and the access to especially the uh, the death camps, um, because the Nazis built all of their death factories, uh, their death camps in Poland. Uh, these were uh, not casualties of war. I mean, this was part of the um, the planned uh, genocide of the Jewish people. Uh, others were impacted, uh, but the Jewish people and the Roma. Uh, were targeted for, uh, you know, for genocide. Uh, But they built the six uh, death factories, the the six death camps in Poland. And during the March of the Living, uh, the actual march itself takes place from the Auschwitz One facility, uh, marching, I I think it's roughly three kilometers uh, down the road to Birkenau, uh, to the, I guess that's the larger facility, the larger camp that people associate with Auschwitz, uh, Birkenau. And that's where, um, uh, you know, you had the, uh, uh, the infamous uh, showers and the gas chambers and the um, uh, the uh, crematoria and like they were it wasn't the only place with that I mean I could go down the list but I won't but the March of the Living takes place there and the educational purpose um, for us 11th and 12th graders will spend the entire year studying about uh, Jewish history because I don't think we only want to talk about death death we want to talk about the richness of Jewish life life in Europe, Uh, but they'll spend the year studying that curriculum as well as talking about, uh, you know, who the Nazis were, what their plan was. And then uh, we spend roughly a week in Poland uh, visiting the death camps, participating in the March of the Living and the memorial ceremonies there. And then when that finishes, they go for a week to Israel. And that coincides with what will take place next week, which is uh, Israel's Independence Day. Uh, why are these days so close to one another? I'll just give you the very quick answer. Um, we actually should be marking um, Holocaust Memorial Day close to the beginning of Passover, because for the Jewish people, it marks the day that we fought back against the Nazis and the Germans uh, with the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which took place in 1943. Uh, the Jewish people of the Warsaw Ghetto held off the Nazis for longer than the entire country of Poland did. Wow. Now, that ghetto was later leveled. I think we all can imagine what that looks like these days, um, as we're seeing the Russians do things like that. Uh, having said that, um, we say that the day that we want to remember our people and what had happened to us should also coincide with us fighting back and resisting. But we didn't want it to overshadow Passover. And so ultimately, when we took this new type of memorialization, we said, well, let's let Passover be done. We'll wait a few days. And that's when, uh, you know, Holocaust Memorial Day will be. And we mark it every day. It started last night, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, on the Hebrew calendar. It just happened to be April 27th yesterday. Uh, And it goes through the daylight hours of the next day afterwards, uh, which this year is April the 28th. Um, And it really is a solemn day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next week uh, will be Israel's Independence Day. And that also coincides on the Hebrew calendar with the day that uh, the modern state of Israel declared its independence 
uh, and um, and the like, and we could talk about that at a different time. Uh, but long story short, last night's commemoration at Temple was quite powerful. This is the first time that we've been together in person uh, for three years. Wow. Um, because of, of COVID, uh, but we were able to gather in person. Uh, in addition to that, last night we heard the testimony, the personal testimony of a young woman whose parents uh, were survivors. Now that we've done before, we've had children of survivors speak at our particular uh, service over the years. But I think the additional twist to it is that she herself grew up in Kiev, Ukraine. Mm. And so she was also talking about what's taking place now. She really talked about three levels. Number one was her parents' story. Number two was her own personal story growing up uh, as a child of survivors. Someone who, by the way, when she was 40 years old, winds up leaving uh, Ukraine and coming to the United States. She talked about how proud she was uh, and how her family really had, had seen this as a goal. Uh, throughout their life, but that op- that opportunity opened for them in the late 1990s uh, to come here to the Greensboro area. And lastly, she talked about what's taking place right now in Ukraine and how it just really uh, is one of the hardest things that she's ever lived through. And that's on top of being a child of survivors and knowing what mm. she knows about uh, her oh, parents' man. story. So it was quite powerful. If I sound really like uh, reflective right now, uh, maybe a less less energetic than I did when I was on the show last time. Part of it is because I'm just taking in what we heard last night, and um, you know those those very heartfelt words. Yes, you know it's. Uh, I've been to Auschwitz, and our last show we talked uh, with our daughter, who's adopted from Poland, from Białystok, um, and I spent time in Krakow. Uh, and you know when you start talking about the Holocaust and what happened there and what's happening in Ukraine, you do get solemn. Mm-hmm. Your spirit feels it because it's an evil thing. It is a terrible thing. And, uh, and same thing with slavery, Odell. I might go even go there that, you know, what happened to your ancestors is a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, we can't correct it, but we can remember and we can stand up against it if it comes again. And uh, I'm proud that our country is sending supplies and people to help the Ukrainian, I, quite frankly, I think they should do more. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. I really, you know, having been there and ha- having heard people talk about what's taking place, you know, there, there's that, uh, the hat that I wear as a rabbi, uh, you know, at times, uh, you know, we pray for, we pray for peace, but I think we also need to understand that there are times that, uh, you know, that needs, that needs to be achieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, um, you know, by people being able to have the strength to defend themselves. Also. Sure. I do have a question for both you and Odell. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, I've been thinking about this. You know, we, we are certainly energized to help Ukraine in what's happened in the genocide that's going on with the Ukrainians. I, I've, I've often I've started to wonder why aren't we also that energized in other parts of the world where the genocide is, particularly Black Africa. It's kind of like, well, we don't get that involved in those things like we are in Ukraine. And the question is, this is an open-ended question. It's not to make anybody feel good or bad, but why don't we do more? I know they said we're not supposed to be the police of the world, but I think there is some responsibility someplace to step in and help people like the Jewish people that they're in Germany. We should have obviously done a lot more. Listen, I agree. And, you know, in our own lifetime, I think we have to take a look at, at Rwanda and what took place in Rwanda. And we have to ask the same questions. And I don't want to say that the world, you know, just uh, stood on the sideline at the time. Uh, but I think that there, you know, that that happened so rapidly. And, um, uh, you know, and, and again, I don't want to try to find a, uh, an excuse for this just to say that uh, you're 100% right. I think we saw what was taking place in Syria. And, you know, without making excuses, I think that very often what we do is first and foremost, we look to the neighboring countries and see when there are refugees that are coming out of certain areas, how are those countries helping or impeding? Um, You know, I want to know, you know, for example, as refugees were coming out of Syria, let's take that as an example. And I don't want to take it as an example of a genocide, but we're talking about a massive, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, a refugee situation, you know, what was taking place in Turkey, what was taking place in Iraq, what was taking place in other parts of the world. We were at the border, I think, uh, on one of the trips that I took, we were at the border with Israel. And we know that while it was kept under wraps, Israel was bringing in people who were fleeing from the Syrian civil war at the time. Uh, Rwanda was terrible. And, uh, you know, we, we may need to an- ask the questions and say, you know, in addition to what we do from halfway around the world, what is the relief that's coming in from neighboring countries? Uh, because once that is uh, established and once that is seen, uh, we can then uh, perhaps begin to help and get the assistance to people who are closest mm. to what's taking place. America, I don't know that we always have blinders on, uh, but I think that we need to be, you know, we need our diplomats and I think we need our eyes open. We are um, often, we often reject the label of being the world's police force. Uh, but you know what, if we're not going to step in and help in the times that it's necessary, we don't have to go to war. But to step in and help in times it's necessary, I wonder why we have all this power. That was one of the things that Madeleine Albright said, Madeleine Albright of blessed memory, uh, who was laid to rest just yesterday. Uh, but, you know, she asked that question to American generals and says, listen, if you're not going to uh, in, um, in parts of the world, uh, you know, exercise your force to stop the bad from happening, then what's the purpose of us having all of this force to begin with? Absolutely. Odell, your thoughts. You know, it's, it's interesting that when I think about it, the first thing I say is, and, and the first thing I think is that I think that this world, through historical contents, devalues Black lives. I, I think that's the, the a big part of it. I don't think that in a lot of cases is looked at it the same. And, you know, Rabbi... Quite often I talk to people and they say, Odell, and, and they mean it. See, this is what I love about this show, Common Crown, because they mean it in a very sincere way, or at least it's presented that way, is not hostile. But they say, Odell, one of the problems with Black people, because I like when, you know, it's always entertaining when white people tell me about what's the problem with Black people. It's like, one of the problem with Black people is that you all need to move on from slavery. You talk about slavery all the time. You need to move on from slavery. And that's holding you back, man. You're just really focusing on slavery too much. And my answer has always been, well, you know, to those who are victimized, and not saying people are victim, but for those who were victimized, my ancestors, and I always talk about my ancestors, is not as simple as just move on. And I said, to the people the Jewish people who got murdered in their families from Hitler is probably not as simple as you would think for them to move on. And I said, for those who are in Ukraine, who are fleeing the country, who loved ones got murdered, maybe one day you realize that it's not as simple for you to tell them, hey, yeah, I know Russia did this, but you just need to move on. And, and that's the thing that I don't think people fully understand but at the same time, when you think about Russia taking some Ukrainian citizens over to Russia, what's going on there? I, I haven't heard enough about what's going on there. I heard about the people who are getting away. We hear about the people who've gotten murdered. We hear about all the war crimes. Do you know any place that I or the listening audience, because our audience is national and in a lot of cases international. I think we're in 25 countries now. And I, I have a bad habit, but I love it, of asking a zillion questions in one. So let me rephrase my question. First, how do you feel when someone says, and maybe they've never said, the problem with the Jewish people, you all need to move on from the Holocaust, like they tell me. And they're comfortable saying, so this gives me an opportunity to explain to them. And secondly, sir, when you were over there a couple of weeks ago, did you hear anything about the people who are being taked, taken to Russia? Okay, so very quickly, I did not hear about, uh, you know, I've read the same reports that you've read about uh, uh, people being taken into Russia. There was a um, report, uh, it was actually a, uh, one of the Russian news outlets. Um, and, um, you know, those who are international listeners may know of the outlet known as Ria Novosti. Uh, I cannot read Russian, but uh, the woman who spoke last night uh, at our temple, who's on Temple Emanuel staff, uh, she told me about this article, and it essentially read as a blueprint for how Russia was going to be taking care of, uh, you know, and 
and uh, and really effectuating the disappearance, you know, the uh, the erasure of uh, of uh, the Ukrainian people. Uh, it's terrible. Right. It's almost like, you know, they, you know, tyrants are really good at telling you exactly what they want to do uh, to go wow. back to, to go back to your first question, though. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Maybe I said this last time I was on the show, but, you know, every so often people will say to us as, as Jewish people, they'll say, well, you know, um, you, you talk about the Holocaust a lot. It seems like that's such a, you know, such a hang up. And uh, my, our, our answer to that, and I learned this from my predecessor, Rabbi Gutman, uh, our answer to that is, listen, one, there was a point in history where a pharaoh, um, a pharaoh over Egypt thought it was a good idea to throw uh, baby boys into the Nile River to kill them and to eradicate the Jewish people. That happened 4,000 or 3,500 years ago, and we still haven't stopped talking about that, right? There are, like, there are lessons to be learned. And trauma right. does trauma does continue to impact. And the thing about the story of the exodus from Egypt is that we left Egypt, but we continue to talk about it even though we're no longer in Egypt. Um, and, um, you know, you know, American, you know, American enslavement of, of black and brown people that happened here and it didn't happen that long ago. And afterwards, uh, you know, there's this reversion back and you had the, you know, the Jim Crow era and you have, you know, uh, you have so many uh, restrictions and, and still bias and bigotry and racism persists. Uh, we, we can't stop talking about these things because as much as we want to try to pray away the issues, the fact is, is that things are going to come through, you know, change is going to come through education and it's going to come through us as you talk about all the time. Cause I'm, I may be one of the number one listeners to this podcast, but you know, you talk about finding common ground. And part of that is through us telling our stories and really listening to one another. I want people to know what really happened right in Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s. I don't want to stop the Nazis from invading uh, Poland in 1939. I can't do that. I can't turn back the hands of time. Uh, I can't stop American slavery from happening back then, right? Uh, you know, the enslavement of black and brown people. But I can learn lessons from these so that we can do things differently and better, uh, you know, more collaboratively for the future. And, and to your point is, too, I've learned, and I've learned because of the Jewish Federation uh, allowing me the opportunity to go on many trips and understand because until you really understand, you don't understand. And I'm sure there's a whole lot more learning to do, but it's able to learn in a safe space. And that that's all that's what it's all about. Learning in a safe space. And I just I'm I'm thankful. And when I remember when I invited my good friend Bill Goble and his wife to go to a trip to Israel and and you know Bill, Bill, what did you think when I first said, hey, what was it? Because I know it was a stretch. Well, you know, it was interesting. Um, as I reflect on that, it was a couple of years ago. It was 2019 before COVID, March of 19, I believe. That's correct. Um, you know, um, we had always wanted to go to Israel, and but we were, we were thinking of doing it through our church or some sort of religious thing as, in a vacation as well. Um, so when you invited us, uh, I was in, I was assuming that kind of thing. Uh, little did I know until I got there that it was a working trip. It was, it, I was, it's an educational trip. I shouldn't say it was working. It was educational. And as I found, you know, it, it dawned on me what it was for some reason, it never clicked until I got there. And then I go, this is really good. I'm going to pay attention to this stuff. And I'm so glad that we went a couple of days early because uh, I got past the, the jet lag fog and I was able to, you know, focus on things and learn things and it opened my eyes. And I wanted to share with you something that, that, that I've kind of taken away from the trip. And I, I Odell, I thank you for doing that. And Rabbi, I thank you for being on it and sharing oh, with yeah, us. And I mean, I learned so much. I, we could probably do two shows on that, but I've been there. There's a guy by the name of Warner Earhart uh, and a pretty good philosopher. And uh, he, he does a lot of different things. Uh, you can Google his name, Warner Earhart. Uh, the, uh, he, he, here's what he, he sent something out on his uh, tweet. It says operating principles for you and me and the world. I'm thinking, okay, let's, let's listen to this. Uh, operating principles for you and me and the world. Respect the other's point of view, whether you whether or not you agree with it. But recognize that if you had their history, 
their circumstances and their forces that play on them, you would likely have their point of view. And, you know, it, it occurred to me that all three of us have had different experiences. All three of us have come from different cultures, different set of lenses. And you're seeing something, you know, that I don't see and vice versa. And the beauty of going on that trip was there was probably 65 sets of eyes, maybe. Oh, yeah. And, and they all, at the end of whatever we did, someone was able to reflect on what, and one person would stand up and talk, maybe two, and it would give you that different set of lenses that they're looking through that I hadn't occurred to me. And uh, into traveling overseas uh, and like going to Auschwitz and places like that, you know, when I first went to Auschwitz, my I went thinking it was kind of a tourist thing because uh, I was in Krakow taking pictures of that church and where the Pope came and all that stuff. And I knew there was there, it was a concentration camp, but I wasn't so sure. Cause I had no Jewish friends at the time. I wasn't so sure if it was an exaggeration of how bad it was. And uh, our last podcast, I told the story. I, I went in through the gate, take a picture of the gate, take a picture, of a couple of the buildings. And then you start going into rooms. I stopped taking pictures. Yeah. You, it's not a tourist place. No. It's, it's, it, it, it I couldn't even talk at the end of it. It was so you could feel the feeling in there was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And again, when I, when I went there, it was uh, you know, this is, this is a story that we've heard over and over again from our people, but uh, you know, to walk in there, it, it just is chilling. Uh, and uh, beyond that, uh, when you look at the enormity of it, right. Uh, one out of every three Jewish people alive was murdered. Uh, by the Nazis and or their accomplices. Um, and that these were places like there was a business that put out the bid, right? You know, that, that got the contract to build that place so that the most efficient way of processing and murdering Jewish people could take place. Uh, that of the 6 million Jewish people, again, one out of every three Jewish people uh, from that time, um, and the Nazis were not, that, that wasn't where they wanted to stop. They had a list of all of us, uh, but uh, that a quarter of that amount uh, were children. When I say children, I don't want you to think just infants, but it was like, uh, you know, anybody that they didn't have use for. If you were 17, you might've been okay, but anybody 17 and younger, uh, essentially. Uh, and if you meet someone who's in their mid nineties uh, now, uh, chances are they were just a lucky person or a good liar. They were in the line to be murdered. Someone said, listen, go in that other line and tell them you're 18, but I'm 14. No, no, tell them you're 18. I'm 18. Okay. You know, we're going to go with you. And they kept, you know, they, they, they were able to live another day, another week through another selection and kind of learned how to stay alive. But it was a very small group of people, you know, mm. ultimately that lives. Uh, and that's why you've got that, you know, that gap that runs out. Uh, you don't find people that are much younger unless they were infants who were hidden by their parents towards the end of the war who just happened to, you know, not get caught and happened to live. Uh, you know, this is, this is terrible. Auschwitz is, you know, um, is, is one of the worst places uh, known to humanity, but it was one of six death factories. And we could all talk about, and we should never compare our traumas. Uh, but that, that's that. And um, I will tell you this, if you want to pivot to, uh, to Ukraine for a moment, I think one of the things, and again, I, you know, I, it's not like I did a survey or anything like that, but you walk around the country, uh, you know, as I, as I interacted with people and you get a sense that Poland of 2022 seems to be reacting to two things. Number one is having lived under Soviet rule for so long. And I think that there are no you know, they're, they're no friends with the Russians and they see what the Russians are doing. And they say, listen, if we don't take care of things in Ukraine, this is going to be Poland next. So that's kind of the one thing. And I think they feel a kinship, but I think they also feel a disgust at the way that Russia treats the world. I think that the other side of it is that this is a, you know, this is a repair for what they didn't do. And some did. I mean, there were the largest number of righteous Gentiles were Polish. Was recognized in the world, the people that took Jewish people in and 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 and, and held them, uh, but on the other hand, percentage-wise, I think it was somewhat similar. You just had a large, you had three three million 
Jewish people living in Poland. We were about 10% of the population of Poland in the late 1930s. And, you know, you know, so the numbers would shake themselves up, but percentage-wise, it wasn't any higher. And if you look around, you see 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, and you see people who are entrepreneurial, who are mobilizing their society now to help. And they're saying, essentially, we've learned the lesson of never again. And we're wow. doing our part now to correct. Mm. Wow. That's one wow. rabbi's take on it, folks. Yeah. And now, now you went at the last hour. You weren't supposed to be going on this trip, right? No, no. There was a group of about uh, 30, uh, mostly from the reform movement of Judaism, uh, clergy, uh, rabbis, cantors, uh, most from the United States, some from Israel, some from Europe, who uh, you know had been planning this for, again, the war had not been going on for a long time, uh, but had been planning this for at least a couple of weeks. They were able to poke around their communities. And our emeritus rabbi, um, Rabbi Fred Gutman, uh, was supposed to go on this trip. And in fact, one of the stories is uh, that I'll tell. We had done already done a lot for uh, the relief efforts, uh, both as a Jewish community as a whole, uh, but also uh, Temple Emmanuel raising consciousness about uh, what was going on. We had a uh, piano concert. We had a few Eastern European musicians uh, who played. We raised a, a decent amount of money for this. All that notwithstanding, Rabbi Gutman announced he was going on this trip. He said, look, I want to bring a couple duffel bags over with supplies, maybe with some medicines or some uh, diapers. Uh, and he turned to Temple Emmanuel, our congregation, and said, uh, you know, would you please make donations towards this effort? You know, I, I thought that that was great. His idea was that maybe 500 or 750 bucks would come in. Now, he was our senior rabbi for 26 years, so I think he knew a little bit better than that. <laughs> but if I tell you the response to his um, to his question came in over 40 times the amount that he expected. Wow. I mean, over $20,000 was raised. All of that has been given to relief efforts, uh, you know, in uh, for Ukrainians um, at this time. Uh, but, um, but he... Um, uh, you know, he was uh, watching his grandkids and got a case of COVID mm. and wasn't able to travel. Now, I found out about this like on the Thursday or the Friday before uh, this trip was supposed to take place. And so my first question was, well, maybe I can pick up your ticket and I can go ahead and travel in your place. And that was a no go. Uh, you know, I don't know the way the airline industry works or whatever. But, um, you know, once I got that idea in my head and I'm, I'm the kind of a person that thinks that when you're called to do something, you just go ahead and do it. Now, I wasn't going into Ukraine. I wasn't going to be in Kiev or I wasn't going to be in Mariupol or anything like that. We were in Poland, mostly in Krakow. On the Tuesday of this experience, right before Passover, we were at the border between Poland and Western and Western Ukraine. Uh, and so I really felt that a couple of things. Number one is I was able to bring some supplies over, but most of what happened was just sent over as a, uh, as a donation. Uh, but I was able to bring some supplies over. We as a group of 30 30 or so clergy, uh, we brought over two tons of material. Wow. Uh, and our combined efforts raised uh, well over a half a million U.S. dollars uh, for the relief efforts. And that's on top of everything else that's been done, uh, you know, um, and but but I really thought one of the most important things to do was to be able to see this as well as to let my community know and anyone I could talk to. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity um, uh, is to let them know that um, that there's something about having been there and seeing seeing things with my own eyes. It's almost like I brought uh, I, like I brought an entire community with me there. Mm. It wasn't just me. If it were only about me, that's, you know, that that's like you said, it's like volunteerism or something like that, which I don't want to, uh, in fact, I learned a lot about volunteerism when I was there. I saw people who in retirement just go from different place to different place to different place in the world. And that's what they do. They help out. Wow. And I saw some of people over in Poland helping with massive relief efforts, uh, you know, people from Denver or from other parts of the United States. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, I was only there for a short period of time, but to stand at the border and to bear witness to what was happening, right? Bearing witness is also critical. And I felt like I was not doing it alone. It was almost like, you know, Greensboro was there with me. Central North Carolina was there with me. People of all different backgrounds. And, and uh, I think that there's a responsibility that comes with it, right? Which is to tell the story. That's why I'm very grateful for this. That's why I'm very, very grateful for some of the press coverage that's taken place. And I have an op-ed piece going in the Greensboro news and record this coming uh, oh, wow. weekend. So, look, 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 yeah, for yeah. Thanks. Thanks. look for that. Odell? You know, Rabbi, I, I just my mind's everywhere. I was just thinking back years ago when I was um, a, how can I say it? 
I was with Moses Cone Hospital as a clergy, I, you know, volunteer clergy. You, I don't know if you had that experience or not, but I remember one summer I was there and they brought in a little black boy who got hit by lightning and, you know, didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And part of being a clergy had to be involved in emergencies, of course, when families came. And I remember just going through my day and going in there, looking at the little boy, Bill, and he had on Scooby-Doo underwear. And let me explain. My little boy at that same age would always wear Scooby-Doo underwear. And I looked at that little black boy and thought about my child and just really emotion. I just kind of lost it because it's like, what would happen if it was my child? You know, it's one thing you give an aid, but, and I thought about what Rabbi said was, I'm there bearing witness, giving aid, helping in any way I can. And what happened if it was my family? Rabbi, what, did you see anything like that that really just got your attention, a little girl, a family or something that got your attention and say, wow, or was the whole thing just so overwhelming, sir? Yeah, no, I, I actually appreciate that question. One of the things they said to us was, look, you know, we have this propensity in this day and age to like take pictures of everything. And they said, don't, right? You know, um, you're going to come back with some impressions that you can share with others. But these are uh, people whose lives are in turmoil. You're catching them at their worst moment. You're not a journalist. Uh, and um, uh, the other thing they said to us is that uh, there are times that the Russians troll different types of media. And so they told us, you know, if you want to show some pictures to your community, that's one thing. But please do not post these things up on Facebook. This isn't about you. Uh, but I will tell you of, uh, just of a couple instances. And I'm clergy, so I can go on for a while. So I'm going to try to make this brief. <laughs> uh, number one was um, when we were standing at the border, there was one family that stood out for me. And the volunteers, you know, the people who were stationed there came over. Over them very quickly because there was an older woman who was crying and it was like three generations were standing there. I think it was like a mother and it looked like a grandmother and an aunt and then a daughter. And um, I'll never forget the impression because, you know, the volunteers were working with them. And, you know, when you see tears, what are you supposed to say? I mean, I could, I could superimpose my feelings on this, but I can say that there could be a range there. Maybe there were tears of joy. Maybe they were tears of fear. Maybe someone just needed to say, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm hurting. Come help me here. I need something to eat, whatever it might be. Um, but if you noticed, one of the descriptions is, is that these were all women, right? There were no men. That was a, 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 an absence of of, of men between the ages of 16 and 60. We know that because they're not allowed to leave the country. Uh, so that's one of the things that stood out for me. The other thing that stood out for me is that, you know, you're at the border and it just is kind of like, you know, there's a fence there. There's maybe like a station, almost like going through one of those turnpike tolls or something like that. You have to come through, I'm sure, and show your papers and, and the like. Um, uh, you know, and, and we know that Europe is open to receive um, uh, Ukrainians uh, who are coming out. Um, but um, once you get away from the border, maybe a couple of miles, there are these reception centers. Uh, it's almost like somebody took one of those big box stores, you know, so whatever your favorite big box, you know, Odell, you're very entrepreneurial. I've seen the type of work that you've done in our community where you've taken, uh, you know, areas and you transform them into places that people work, uh, you know, yes. so imagine like this, you know, you've got an old big box store area and they just clear it out. And so they put a bunch of numbers on the wall and you would go to each station when you come through. But the idea is not that you're going to live there on the border, but you get to the next place, a bigger city, a place where you can work, a place where you can get residents. There were hundreds of cots that, you know, cots, beds that were set up, but those were just so that people could spend the afternoon or the evening, or at most they told us 48 hours so that they could get to the next place. But it's very well organized. Here you go, you know, to get your information. Here you go if you need cell phone service. Here you go if you need a bite to eat. Here you go if you're not feeling well. Uh, we, um, in one of those reception areas, we, you know, and, and look, I got to tell you everywhere you look, it's like, you see the United Nations. Wow. You see relief groups from all over the world, but I got to tell you guys, and maybe it's just my eyes are tuned into it because I'm Jewish, but I saw a lot of Jewish relief organizations and I saw a lot of Israeli flags and I heard a lot of Hebrew, one of my languages, uh, because again, um, you know, maybe for whatever reason, 
you know, Jewish people in the state of Israel are there to help. So we were one area with an organization from Israel, and this was not, you know, there was there were no refugees or Ukrainians uh, who could hear this, but the guy was reporting to us and he just said to us, and my heart dropped, he said, look, uh, at this point, one of the, you know, we have this, the medical supplies we need, but the thing that we're running out of and I just want to give your, your listeners a heads up that, um, you know, if you're sensitive to issues of abuse, you're going to want to uh, hit, uh, you know, you're going to want to fast forward about 10 or, or 20 seconds. Uh, but they said, we're running out of, um, of not just rape check kits, but rape suture kits. And that was one of the mm. things that, that stood out for me uh, in that also. You asked about uh, people that we saw. We actually saw some people crossing back over the border into Ukraine. You may say, well, what the heck's that all about? Look, this was about the six-week mark of the war. And you had people who were going back to check on their family. Or maybe their mm-hmm. neighborhood had been spared. We were told by others that it's like that those are, uh, in terms of finding their family, they probably will. But in terms of finding their neighborhood still standing in certain areas, that is a real misplaced hope. Uh, and uh, beyond that, uh, we also heard the, uh, the testimony of a woman who said, look, I'm not going to claim any refugee relief. She says, I'm doing okay. I've landed. Wow. I'm here with my five-year-old daughter. Russian was our language. And she said, and you, maybe you, you, we, your listeners can appreciate this. She said, we have stopped speaking Russian. She said, it's just too painful because the yeah. Russians were people that we knew very often they were our friends they came and visited our areas you know the, we're you know ukraine in some places was like the jewel of the crown in the former soviet union and it was the resort area that people would come to visit and you know the the daughter who's five years old said mommy when you, when you tell me stories now and when i when i tell you stories back i'm going to only speak polish because the polish people have been so good in receiving us wow um, Wow. And, 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 and like her daughter is speaking to her and they're going through a children's book. I mean, again, I just want to reflect this to you. And they're going through the, the book. And, um, you know, some of the words are real Polish because the kid's been there for a couple of weeks and she knows how to say whatever, you know, words and kids adapt to language very quickly. But others were just made up words that sounded Polish. <laughs> and that's how they've been communicating. And in fact, when her dad, who's still in Ukraine, got on the phone, she said, Daddy, we're not speaking uh, Russian anymore. We're only going to speak Polish. And, you know, it's stories like that that just hit you right in the heart Mm, mm, mm. because, you know, you want to say to somebody, yeah, but isn't there a a way that we can all sit at the common table of, you know, of of one big human family? And the answer to that should be an equivocal yes. But right now there's a child who is in tremendous pain. And as clergy, as rabbis, we could hear that. Uh, and uh, those are the things that take uh, sometimes not just years, but generations in order to affect any type of, uh, of repair. So how were you affected yeah. by this trip? Uh, so I have to say, I came back from the trip and uh, that uh, within 48 hours, I was on our pulpit leading a service. And then I was at the first night of Passover. Uh, and so on the one hand, it was just you know, uh, you know, it was just sheer, like you're going from one place to another and whatever hardships or exhaustion that you're feeling, it pales in comparison to what you've just saw, uh, seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly, I think that um, I have this sense that, um, and, and I've said this in other venues to people who've asked me, um, the question might come uh, from our children what one day or our grandchildren, my children are already in their 20s. So God willing, one day, grandchildren or great-grandchildren will say, well, what did you do when these things were happening in the world? And I can say, you know, there was once a time where this happened and I dropped everything and went. Mm. You know, I can say that to the high school seniors and juniors that I work with and the middle schoolers, you know, that when there is, when there are difficult things happening in the world, yeah, we've got the other stuff that's happening uh, in our lives, right? Yes, there's, there will always be an internet or you know, checking this or that or the other thing, but uh, there are the right times where you drop things and you just go and respond. Mm. That's well, the way that it impacted me. Um, you know, is it made me any kinder, any more compassionate? I don't know. Uh, you know, have, am I taking away lessons beyond what I've talked with you about? I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I've given you, uh, you know, from my heart and, and I think we've had a very heartfelt conversation, right. But I'm, I'm happy to tell you anymore. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I just feel like, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a very, uh, you know, it was a very intense 
um, in the sixties and seventies, we'd say it was a very heavy experience, you know, <laughs> but not like, you right. know, it, yeah. it, it was very weighty. I mean, this mm. is the things that we're seeing on TV from much closer within these cities. I was just seeing that next impact of it. I was heartened by the relief efforts taking place. And I was thoroughly shaken to my core by the stories that people were telling about how this has impacted their lives. Mm. Phil, yes, sir. You know, something that the rabbi said makes sense. Rabbi, the defiance of the Ukrainian people, because we don't want to leave here thinking Ukrainian people were victims. We don't want to leave here thinking Jewish people were victims. We don't want to hear thinking that African-American uh, enslaved African-American were victims or anyone else. You know, Victoria Milstein is doing this project that we can't wait to interview her about that they won't take off her boots. And when you talked about the the family of females coming over and then the other young ladies saying, I don't want to take any relief. Bill has been doing a lot of work and talking with the Millsteens on that piece. So, Bill, can you share with our audience and then we'll ask the rabbi, because I know he has a, a hard stop to talk about what that means, because I'm excited about it. And how can we even support that effort? Uh, we're <clears throat> we're going to get Victoria on uh, probably in a week or so. Uh, she was supposed to be on this week, but COVID came through. Yeah. And uh, by the way, if I could just lean in for those who aren't from Greensboro, uh, one of these days, you should make it your um, your focus uh, to at least learn more about Victoria Milstein. Uh, she is one of my faves. Yeah, she's she's special. And her hu- husband, Ron, too. Both yeah, of them. Absolutely. What a great couple. Well, um, she's doing a sculpture. I, I She did a TED talk on this and uh, it kind of I, I saw the picture years ago, but she put it in context and basically this picture was taken by a German soldier of uh, five women just before they were getting executed. Uh, a grandma, uh, a, a daughter, granddaughters, and maybe a cousin it was all females. And these Germans stripped them down to their skivvies. And uh, the, you know, obviously that was an embarrassing situation uh, for strangers to do that. And this German soldier took a picture and the picture was probably meant for no good. Mm-hmm. And Victoria found that picture. And she says, I'm going to make this picture for good. And so she's taking uh, one of the, the older lady in defiance wouldn't take her boots off. And in, uh, in the name of the sculpture is she wouldn't take her boots off. And she's done a life um, bigger than lifestyle sculpture. I mean, it's what eight, 10 foot tall. Yeah. It's huge. And so she's finishing up the sculpture and they we're going to bronze it. And then the state of North Carolina uh, help fund uh, part of it. And then we raised the rest in the community. Uh, they gave us like 25%. And the, and the reason they gave us, I asked the, the John Hardister, who was on the show, I said, what was the reasoning for it? And not that I, you know, I just more interested. He said, one of the things that we like to do is do things for educational purposes for our communities. And this is an educational opportunity because it's going to be much more than just a statue. There's going to be storyboards. There's going to be other things around it talking about not only these five women, but about the Holocaust in the, in bringing back a remembrance. And I think the more we can do those kind of things to educate our youth, I can see school buses going to this people taking trips to see it. Uh, And you tie that in with our civil rights museum where we started the sit-in movement, you can come and and then you can go to Magnolia House, which is a house that was in the Green Book. Uh, The Green Book is where Blacks used to travel because they weren't allowed in different places and you didn't want to get stuck. Even gas stations, you had to drive by because it was a white gas station. So we've got a lot. And then we have the uh, Underground Railroad tree here. Mm -hmm. And if I can add to that, because... uh, you know, when you go on to the campus of North Carolina A&T State University, I mean, if you want to draw the direct parallel, there is a larger than life sculpture of the uh, Greensboro Four. And, uh, you know, I've often felt that that type of tie in, that that type of uh, parallel, uh, I've often felt that that is one of the most uh, impressive elements of public art here in the entire triad, I agree. I agree. Uh, which is the uh, the larger than life statue of the uh, Greensboro Four on the campus of A&T State University. 
And I would say to anybody visiting the area that those, you know, many places that you've pointed out and many more uh, are part of the story that we tell. And again, nowadays, this is for educational purposes. You can stand out, you can stand outside of the historic Woolworths, I call it the historic Woolworths, only because of the events that took place. What took place, you know, uh, in terms of segregation and keeping uh, and keeping black and brown people from having uh, lunch there uh, inside for so long uh, was terrible. But uh, the you know you can stand in the foot in the footsteps of the giants uh, who helped to uh, at least you know do one element of change. Uh, I think that that's amazing. So in terms of public art, you're 100 right, and I think the Victoria is just adding that next uh, link in uh, the story and the narratives that we tell. I will make sure that she gets the picture because you don't see the faces of the women. I did take a picture of the of these four women coming across the border, but I think that it just adds into her narrative, and I'll make sure that she gets that. Oh, that would be great yeah, to yeah, add yeah. to. Thank it, you for yeah. uh, jogging my memory. Yeah, it's that. a great idea because she, she's going to do uh, little vignettes, so. That'd be good. Yeah. And I will say to people that, you know, whatever opportunities they have to give to the relief efforts, please do that. I know that people like to check out, you know, charity navigators just to make sure that what they're giving goes to doesn't take care of overhead. Among my favorites, I know that the Jewish Federations of North America and here locally in Greensboro, they've done an amazing job of, um, you know, of putting out a call and making sure that the uh, the funds get to where they're needed to go uh, in Ukraine uh, in particular. I know that uh, the World Union for Progressive Judaism, and I can just speak about that as a uh, as a reform rabbi, has done a good job at getting relief efforts, especially to religious communities, uh, synagogues that now find themselves away from home, right? But trying to uh, keep things going as synagogues, either in exile or in um, you know uh, in peril. And lastly, and I'll just throw this out there: I saw the work of the Jewish Community Center in Krakow. And in the course of about eight weeks, uh, actually less than that, in about three weeks, they transformed themselves as being a Jewish community center that was working mostly with elderly Holocaust survivors. And they had a pre-kindergarten there, uh, transforming themselves really into a relief center for refugees in the second largest city in Poland. Mm. JCC Krakow, K-R-A-K-O-W, you can probably find the, um, the link to the American Friends of that organization. I think that they operate out of New York. And, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a few dollars or much more, I think that all of that relief and all that aid will go to help. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, there are bigger, um, uh, there, you know, there are bigger gears in movement right now. And I guess that our hope is, is that they will just be exercised wisely and uh, with the, uh, you know, with the, with the goal towards um, uh, alleviating uh, any further pain and harm, those again, may be just more prayers than reality. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's where we all have to be right now. Well, Rabbi, thank you very much for being on our show. Gentlemen, it's always a blessing. Always a blessing. Yes. You know, Rabbi, thank you for being a great leader in this community. Um, two reasons why I say that is because you've always reached out, but I love the transition and everything else. And another person I love too is Kathy Manning. Congresswoman Kathy Manning is doing a great job, and I want to encourage all our listeners who can, please support and vote for Kathy Manning to be the, to get reelected. And I say that and because I want to say that. That's why I say it, because it's a good thing to say, and Kathy's doing a good job. So she, let's, she let's is, quit playing. She's let's an quit playing. She's doing a good job. And I mentioned that uh, that concert, the benefit concert that we did at Temple uh, just a few weeks ago. And, you know, she was the one who uh, who passed the information on to me and put me in touch with the musicians that were doing that. And there are a couple of other uh, in initiatives, uh, I think, that uh, that we can all do together. Uh, there's one idea on the table, uh, you know, to to reach out to companies that um, uh, you know, one of the things that's needed in relief areas. I know this is going to sound so silly, but is underwear. And so if there are those listening from one or another of the textile companies that make underwears and here I'm, you know, I, maybe I just kind of give a, a shout out to companies like Hanes, right? If there's someone who's listening, who has a connection to the Hanes company and can get pallets and pallets and pallets of underwear to the relief areas in Krakow, I can put people in touch tomorrow with uh, the people that are, are running these gigantic warehouses where hundreds, if not thousands of people line up every day, Ukrainian refugees 
refugees to get supplies and we could have this done. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that she may be uh, interested in, in helping in some of those initiatives. There are bigger things that can take place in ways that we can help. Um, yeah. So great. Uh, well, gentlemen, thank you again. Well, Rabbi, I know you have a quick, uh, a hard stop. And one thing I need to share with you yeah. And and you may this may be interesting to you, but the good looking black guy has so far lost 16 pounds. So I'm coming to where you talked to me about years ago, my friend, years ago. I'm, I'm on my way. I'm mean, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? You're looking great, man. <laughs> I, just, I just smile because, um, you know, a number of years ago, I wound up, uh, you know, uh, whatever, having to put myself much more in a, uh, on a different platform than the direction I was heading in. And people uh, will always say that to me. But all I can say is, you know what? You're looking wonderful and God's blessings to you. You should always be happy and healthy and just uh, continue to do the uplifting work that you're doing and that Bill is doing and that uh, we can all do together in this uh, little Southern slice of heaven that we call Greensboro. Amen. Amen. Elohenu Velohevotenu Vimotenu. God, you are the God of our ancestors, but you're also our God. And we turn to you at this time, continue to bless the voices in our community that are working for common ground. Continue to lift up the work that Bill and Odell are doing. Uh, and may it always highlight what not only are the good things that are happening around us, but as well as the challenges and the places that we can do better. Look after those who see to the best interests of our community, the common good, and provide for those who need it most. And we are just, again, in a position to express, no matter what our background is, our gratitude to you at all times, to which we all say, Amen. 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 Love you, Rabbi. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulating and best-read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.